and as we've looked at different uh, spiritual disciplines, we've also learned kind of broadly more about exactly what a spiritual discipline is. For example, we've seen um, that it is an exercise, one that must be practiced. Uh, We've seen that it's disciplined in the sense that it needs to have a plan and a routine and these types of things. As we look at giving this morning, I want to focus on another aspect of spiritual disciplines, which is specifically that they are fruitful, that they actually do something, okay? In other words, the spiritual disciplines are not just a a to-do list for Christians, a a bunch of expectations that God has for you, or some sort of busy work that God has given you to do for some unknown reason. They are cultivating practices. They actually are formative. They're part of our formation. They change us. And especially when it comes to giving, um, I want to take some time and think specifically about the change. Like I said, the passage we're going to look at this morning is a familiar one. Um, Not just should it be a familiar one for you uh, if you are a Christian this morning, but it's one of the more familiar passages in the Bible with uh, with all sorts of people. It comes from Jesus's most famous sermon, um, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically, we're going to look at a section in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. uh, And then we'll read it together and we'll take a look. Actually... Although we're only going to look at the center section of Matthew chapter 6, if we were to begin all the way at verse 1, or if we were to jump forward and read the last half of the chapter beginning in verse 25, we would find uh, other significant principles to think through about giving. Um, I want to focus on these verses, like I said, because it will help us to think through what it is about generosity, what it is about the way we use our money that shapes us, how it changes us. And so reading along with me here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light In you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, before we even begin to talk about our use of money, we want to recognize uh, your provision in our life, Lord. 
We know that all that we have has come from you, Lord. And that's true not just of the surprising or the miraculous ways that you've provided, Lord, but also the mundane. When we work with our hands, we work with the strength you have supplied. When we do our jobs with our gifts and our talents, those are gifts and talents that you have assigned. Uh, when we enter into our job here in this place and in this time, Lord, that is the place where you've put us. And we recognize, Lord, life would be very different if we were born at a different time or in a different place, Lord. And so your sovereign providence is the beginning of our understanding about wealth as well as about need. And so I pray, Lord, as we look at this passage and we reflect on giving this morning, you would instruct us on how giving becomes formative in our life, on what our use of money does to our heart and to our soul and to the rest of our life. And I pray, God, that you would instruct us this morning, um, that you would do so by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Really quickly. I want you to notice that our passage this morning breaks very easily into three separate sections. In fact, probably in your Bible, uh, you have indentation uh, before verse 19, verse 22, and verse 24. I want to take time and I want to look at each one of those individually to draw out that emphasis that I mentioned, that giving does something, to ask the question, what is it that giving does or accomplishes? How does it change us? Um, and then after we've looked at all three, I want to just apply this to three very practical areas. I just want to touch, a, touch on three very natural focal, focal points uh, for application. So let's look again at verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus makes a contrast here um, between two investments, if you will. In fact, it's really foundational to recognize here that Jesus doesn't condemn a desire for wealth. He condemns a foolish investment, right? Here, Jesus doesn't say that the fact that you value treasure or things of worth is condemnable. He says the way that you go about it isn't logical. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. He says, why do you invest in things that are temporary and prone to depletion or destruction, okay? And so you have in your house, I assume, a closet or maybe closets full of clothing. But in the long term, uh, clothing doesn't, uh, doesn't hand, uh, handle time very well. Uh, it's the same with rust, this presence of decay, uh, even in semi-precious metals, uh, has a tendency to destroy the things that we value. And then there's always the possibility of thievery, okay? Um, Jesus contrasts, he says, if, if you want treasure that will last, if you want treasure that is valuable, that it is eternal, instead, invest in eternal things, Okay. The idea here, of course, is that, uh, that there is a way to live our life, to use our money, that is untouchable, 
by the decay of this world, okay? Now, I think it's also really important to talk about here, um, Jesus isn't just talking about banking our reward until a future time, okay? Eternal treasure is eternal now, just as much as later. He is pitching here not uh, some form of stoic self-control that says, look, just put it in your heavenly savings account and don't touch it. And then when you get to heaven, you'll be rich. That's not really the idea. The idea is invest in things that value, that the value doesn't decline or decay on. Okay. There is a way to use your money that yields not just now, but forever. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus puts it this way. He says, right now you have, and this is his words, unrighteous mammon. Okay. If you're curious, mammon is actually the word in verse 24 there. You cannot serve God and mummy. Uh, money, not mummy. Uh, you cannot serve God and mammon is what it literally says here in the Greek text. Uh, but mammon is just a stand-in god of wealth, if you will. Um, but when Jesus uh, mentions it in the Gospel of Luke, he calls it filthy mammon, filthy money. And he says, use it to buy eternal friends. And his point is that whereas money is temporal, mansions are temporal, gold and silver and precious stones are temporal, people are eternal. And so there's a way to use money to invest in eternity because you invest in eternal ones, in people, okay? But what's most important here is not just that Jesus picks apart the logic of how we often use and think about our money. And it doesn't really matter if you are a a spender or a saver. Saving is really easy to see here, right? We can bank our money and forget the fact that there is a future past our funeral. And that future doesn't have a bank account. Even if it's in the Cayman Islands, you can't access it anymore. Um, but it's also true of spenders. If I can use similar language about how we spend from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah asks this question. He says, why do you spend your money on food that is not food and on drink that will not satisfy? Right? There is a way to spend to try and fill the void in our life, to try and fix the things that are wrong, even to try and distract us from our struggles, uh, but hunger returns. Okay? You, you purchase a new car, and as the car decays, as it loses that new car smell, your satisfaction decays, it declines as well, right? So this is true in each ways, but I want to draw your attention to verse 21. Why does Jesus want you to make a wise investment? He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's just recognize the obvious. God has no need for your money. And that's not just true when we're talking about like the coffers of a church, okay? It is important. There are people who will convey to you significant need. You know, our ministry will fail unless everybody writes a big check right now. That doesn't reflect the God of the Bible. He doesn't need us. When God created humankind, he didn't create us out of need, but out of an abundance of love. Just out of the innate uh, reality of who he is. As it says in one of the minor prophets, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our help. But this is also true in human needs all around us, 
Okay. I think one of the greatest struggles of the younger generations of our time right now is that we see the need all around us and we recognize a responsibility we owe to our brothers and sisters worldwide. That's true. But it goes beyond uh, to a sense of final responsibility that we have to do something, which implies if we do something, we can fix it all. If we just work hard enough, if we just give enough, we can solve these problems. But the truth is, no amount of money invested will remove moth and rust and thieves. Okay. Uh, But even there, when it comes to our generosity with people we meet in need, God doesn't need us to meet their needs. Okay. Think of just the handful of times in the Bible that God miraculously provides for people in need. Elijah is depressed and laying in the wilderness and starving, and God provides food. Okay? Jesus is out in the wilderness, and he takes an incredibly small lunch and turns it into a feeding of the multitude. God does not need us. He's not saying, you should invest in the kingdom of God because I have this great plan, I have this great design, and I just need a little more money. Instead, listen again, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is interested in is your heart, not your money. But he knows that where our money goes, our heart follows. Sometimes we think of money being one of the great idols. And to some degree it is. But I would suggest to you that, that it's better to understand money and the way we think about money and the way we spend our money more like uh, something that points to our idols. It shows the state of our heart. Uh, the way we spend our spending habits, your balance book is like a dipstick of your spiritual condition. You know how your car has that stick so you can unscrew it and check both the quality of the oil and its levels, okay? Your spending habits work the same way. Jesus says here, how you think of money will lead your heart. And this is the first thing I want you to see. When we give, we train our heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I remember when the first iPhone came out, okay? Uh, and, uh, I'd never had a smartphone before, and I definitely never spent hundreds of dollars on a piece of technology I could put in my pocket. I remember the first time I left the house walking down my relatively safe street, okay, in Montlake Terrace, and being so hyper aware, it was like I could feel this burning heat in my front pocket, and thinking about, you know, uh, If anyone else knew there was this $500 object in my pocket and wondering what would happen if I got mugged and these types of things, I was just so focused on this thing because I'd made a huge investment in it. Uh, Side note, it's super scary now how, how I have a phone that costs more than that one did, you know, and I don't think about it at all. It's like we've been acclimatized to, to spend this amount of money on, on such a small device. But the point is, uh, you've, you've experienced what Jesus says here in your life. Maybe for the first time in your life, you invested in the stock market. How does that change your daily habits? Suddenly you open a newspaper, you turn to the financials and you check your numbers, right? It, it, when you use your money, your mind follows. And that's what Jesus means by your heart here. He's not just talking about your emotions. He's talking about your core self, 
the real you, your inner identity, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, I want you to notice what this means about giving. The way that you go about your spending habits, the way that you go about generosity, the things that you invest in will change and shift your focus. It will begin to cultivate what you think about, cultivate what you care about, cultivate uh, the decisions you make, okay? I don't think we always think about this, uh, but your wallet is probably the strongest piece of exercise equipment you have in your life. Every time you pull it out, every use you make of it, every charge you put on the credit card is not just, you know, subtracting money here and adding this object there. It is actually cultivating. It's changing you just in small little ways. And so Jesus here is not just calling us to be wise about our spending habits because they are temporal, but wise about our spending habits because they affect us. And when I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about this, to consider what Jesus says here and recognize that although it might come with its own horrors, Right? You might be able to see how your focus in your life has drifted to temporal things or uh, you know, present tense status or, or all of these things, but also recognize that he's given you a formula for changing those things. See, here's the thing. We like to say as a culture that the heart wants what the heart wants. Right? In fact, sometimes we excuse the choices we make because of our desires. But Jesus says, well, hold up here. Although it's out of our heart that flows your activity, there's a sense also where your activity can restrain, constrain, shape, shift your heart. We saw this earlier when we talked uh, uh, last week about about a different spiritual discipline. Uh, We talked about singing and how it can be appropriate for the expressing of your emotions but it can also be like a bridle for your emotions, moving them in a productive direction. What I'm suggesting to you is the discipline of giving is a way to shape and inform your heart within the confines of reality to help you see rightly. In fact, that brings us on metaphorically to part two. Look at the second thing that Jesus says here. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, three things so that we can understand what Jesus means here. First, although he's speaking here um, of, you know, an eye and a body of light and darkness, it's important to recognize that he hasn't changed topics. In fact, notice where he goes in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. And then he says at the end, you cannot serve God and money. So verses 19 through 21, he talks about money. Verses 24 through 25, he talks about money. So whatever he means here in verses 22 and 23 should probably also be understood best as being about money. Okay, It's still on topic. It's not an aside or a change in topic. It is an illustration. The second thing we need to understand here is how the illustration works, okay? 
When we address a metaphor, before we can ask what does the metaphor mean, we have to ask what is the object of the metaphor mean unmetaphorically. Okay, when Jesus says, I am a door, we have to think, what is a door and how does it work? Before we ask, in what way is Jesus like a door? In the same way here, let's just wrap our head around the illustration that he makes. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Okay, so your eyes provide the ability for you to see, all of you. Okay. If you don't want someone to see, you just have to cover their eyes. You don't have to throw a sheet over their whole body. In this way, it's almost like the eyes are windows. Okay, They let in the light, and if you can think of your body like a house, imagine it was empty, the windows would provide light, and your body then would be full of light. But if you cover up the eyes, it's in the dark, just like if you pull blinds on the one you know, window in your studio apartment. So the idea here is the eyes really matter. Without eyes, only blindness. Okay? There is no alternate light source for the body. That is pretty simple and pretty obvious, but the question is, what is he really talking about here? Now, some suggest that mostly what he's talking about here is having a single focus. In other words, this is a preemptive illustration of what Jesus talks about in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters in verse 24. Nobody can be divided in their intention. And so maybe the idea here is you have to be single in your vision or you won't see well, right? If you cross your eyes by trying to look at two things, you, your vision blurs and you don't see. But I would suggest that Jesus has a different intention in mind here. And that's primarily because of what he says in verse 23. It says, but if your eye is bad, and literally there, what Jesus says is, if your eye is evil, Okay. Here, he uses not a word for good or bad or healthy or unhealthy, but a moral word for evil. Okay. And he's probably doing so with a reason. You've probably heard, because it's common to many cultures, the concept of an evil eye. Okay. Uh, the closest we get in modern English is the stink eye, right? Um, but in ancient cultures, having an evil eye was an issue that deals directly with your understanding of money. Okay? If you were prone to selfishness, stinginess, miserliness, jealousy, okay, all of those things. In other words, if your view of money was self-focused, you had an evil eye. And it's not too hard to see how this metaphor came to be, right? Because you would see someone in need, and what kind of a look would you give them? One of disgust or one of compassion? That's a good eye or an evil eye, okay? That's the contrast here. But if I'm right, notice how profound this idea is. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And so if the eyes are evil, the whole body is in darkness, what is the point? Jesus here is effectively saying the way that you think about money affects not just a section of your life, and I mean this in the broad sense of how you treat other people, how you think about other people, uh, issues of pride and humility, okay? In other words, the whole realm of human character and personality, Jesus says here, is directly tied to the control center, which has something to do with giving, with, with your eye, with the eye of the body. If I could put it a different way, if I could put it in the practical way of why we should give, what does giving do? Giving is a gateway virtue. 
right? You know, you've heard people uh, during the war on drugs talk about particularly mild but accessible drugs as being gateway drugs, okay? Giving here is a gateway virtue. Here, Jesus says effectively that the way you go about generosity will actually bleed into the way you go about everything. Now, you can see this emphasis that Jesus makes throughout his ministry. Think of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, here is the law. Here are the Ten Commandments. And he says, I've kept all those for my youth. And he says, you're only lacking one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Why does Jesus lay his finger on that issue? We know that the man was wealthy. We also know that Jesus can see internally what we cannot. He knows the condition of that man's heart. But there is something about his wealth that bleeds into all of his life. That's why Paul says in the pastoral letters that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a gateway behavior. Okay, do you see that? But again, as concerning as this may be for you, as high priority this should make our view of money and our use of money, it also presents to us a positive fruit or consequence of the discipline of giving. Now, I want to get into the underlying logic here. What is it about giving? What is it about generosity in particular that makes it a gateway virtue? You know, the word that's used for a gift throughout the New Testament is the Greek word charis, okay? And that's true of the spiritual gifts, the charismas, okay? It's true of uh, the gift of salvation. And it's also true of the word that's constantly translated grace. If you want to understand Christianity in a single word, there'd be a lot of candidates that are vying for significance. Love would be really a high one right? But grace would be right up there, okay? Grace is the recognition that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, he has offered freely at his own cost, and he has initiated it, okay? In other words, God gave us Jesus not because we earned or deserved Jesus, but because of who God is. It's a gift. It's a grace, Grace is the underlying reality behind Christianity, but whether it bleeds into your life or not shows if it's really impacted you. Okay. The fact that God has initiated in such a loving and gracious and forgiving act changes us into loving and gracious and forgiving people. That's why Jesus says, if you do not forgive you will not be forgiven. That's why Jesus, uh, Paul tells us that we love, or John does actually, we love because he first loved us. And here, uh, he, Paul tells us in First um, Corinthians that we should give generously, this is actually in Second Corinthians chapter 8, excuse me, that we should give generously because Jesus being rich when we were poor became poor so that we might become rich. Okay. In other words, it's not just that our spending habits are the dipstick of our heart. They're also the divining rod for our spiritual health. They show us if the gospel has really sunk in, has really shown that we get it. If we don't transition 
to a reactive generosity, meaning that we become generous because God has been so generous with us, then the full character of love thy neighbor that Jesus calls us to will not be cultivated and made manifest. As long as we have a sense that we deserve what we have, that we are better than other people and that's why God loves us, that we can accomplish salvation or build our own heaven on our own, as long as those ideas persist in our heart, they will be reflected in our treatment of other people. We will see people in need and we will ask, are they deserving before we help them? We will see people who thrive and resentment will take place because of comparison uh, and we will not be able to rejoice with them. We will see a possibility of an investment and our first question will be, how is the return going to be for me? The entire orientation of our body depends on the eyes. Grace, understanding God's grace and incorporating it into our behavior is the gateway to all virtue. And so again, this means that you can take your checkbook and change your character. It means that you cannot ju- you can invest in the kingdom of God and as you're doing so, you also invest in becoming the person that Jesus wants you to be, becoming more like him. Let's look at the last one here. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either one will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay. So here Jesus makes uh, our worship exclusive. He recognizes that a divided worshiper is impossibly divided, and he illustrates in the way of a boss and employees or of a master and slaves. The point is you cannot fully give yourself to two different people. Side note, this is one of the reasons why Christianity maintains monogamy as being the only appropriate place for the intimacy of marriage and sexuality. It's because if you give yourself to more than one person, you don't give the whole of yourself to either one. He says here, either you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. His point here is one of worship that you cannot pursue the God of wealth and pursue the God of the Bible simultaneously any more than you can put one foot in this boat and one foot in that boat and row them both in different directions. God calls for the complete and total commitment of all that we are to him as ultimate. But there's also an implication here because clearly As you read through the New Testament, the call here is not to have no dealings with money. So there is a way to have money. There's a way to use money that is not the same as serving money. And I would suggest that the best way to keep money from being a master is to make it a servant. Okay. In other words, the greatest way to cultivate a singleness of worship 
If you feel yourself distracted and divided, if you find the battle raging hot between longings for success as the world defines it, for just thinking to yourself, the if only of idolatry. Do you know what I mean? The if only of idolatry says, if only this would happen, then everything would be golden. If I only had this, or there's the sense then, there's the sense then of wealth that says, since I have this, everything is good, right? Whatever it is that you make the center point of your wholeness, well-being, and focus is what you worship. Now, we as human beings are prone to idolatry. Calvin, John Calvin, said the heart is a factory of idols. We're constantly producing things to worship, constantly being distracted. If you find those distractions in your life, one of the best things you can do is to harness the good things God has given to worship God. To realign them towards him. How is it that you can make sure that you don't attempt to serve two masters and get stuck in the middle? Don't allow money to be your master, but make it a servant of your worship of God. The truth is, again, coming full circle, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving is not just an expression of our worship, it's a cultivation of it. So, we've seen three things here, and I want to review them very quickly. The way that we handle our money leads our heart. The way that we handle our money shapes our character, and the way that we handle our money focuses our worship, whether rightly or wrongly in all three categories. Okay. Now, the Bible has a whole lot more to say about why we give and about how we give and even about what it does. If you wanted examples of that, you could just read the rest of chapter 6 and you would find significant other principles. You could go to 2 Corinthians 8 that I mentioned earlier, or Philippians 4, or a handful of other places that talk about these things. But here, again, our focus has been on the discipline of giving. Now, practically, here are the suggestions that I would make from this passage. Okay, There's three of them. First, cultivate a life of simplicity. Okay. Famously, Rockefeller was asked on one occasion, you know, one of the original American tycoons, he was asked, how much more money do you need to be enough? And he said, just a little more. Right? His orientation, like many of us, was to think, I just need a little bit more, I just need a little bit more, I just need a little bit more, and then... But the Bible calls us to contentment. In fact, Paul goes as far to say, if we have food, shelter, and clothing, that should be enough. One of the ways that we stop leading our heart to places that are corruptible destructible, decaying, and temporal is we stop investing. We stop storing up. Okay? And so this calls us to a life of simplicity that doesn't buy into the rat race or the American dream or these types of things and recognizes that our contentment 
is found in other sources, that we have other wells to drink from, that we have other food that, that people do not know of which, like Jesus says in John chapter 4. You have to cultivate this contentment uh, and pursue a life of simplicity. Now, I would suggest to you that uh, different uh, vocations, okay, whether you have a family, um, the type of work you're doing, the place that you live, all of these things uh, are going to shape what this should look like in your life, not to mention issues of conscience. And so I don't have a number. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how many bedrooms you should have or how much you should be spending on rent or anything like that, but you should be moving towards a place of simplicity, cultivating an expectation both that the things on this earth will not satisfy and that I will find my satisfaction in other places. Second, very clearly here, uh, Jesus calls us to invest in his kingdom, to participate in what he's doing. Look at what he says just a little bit later in verse, um, verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. If you read the verses leading up to that, food, clothing, shelter, our needs are the things that are he's focusing on there. He says, our primary focus should be the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, if you continue to read the New Testament, you'll see that this means that you should financially invest in the kingdom of God. This means first and primarily that you should be involved in the finances of our local church, okay? And this is not that you should invest in my ministry or the ministry of Calvary the Hill. This is that we as a family have a responsibility together, a mission that God has called us to, and all of us in a proportionate and appropriate way should participate in that. But the kingdom of God, of course, is a lot bigger than our church, and God may rightly lead you to give to his kingdom in all sorts of ways, supporting missionaries and causes and church plants and all of these things. But you should be regularly and proportionately participating in the kingdom of God. And I can say that with confidence because according to this passage, that's not about my well-being. It's about yours. Jesus wants your heart, and that is the best thing God could have for you. And so I encourage you to find a way to regularly, with planning, give to the cause of the kingdom. The third area of application I want to give you, simple living, invest in the kingdom of God, and finally, intentional generosity. The giving that the Bible calls us to is not just to take care of our own. The giving that the Bible calls us to is not just to invest in the kingdom, but to be the kingdom by meeting physical needs. We should be generous with our money. We should be interested in the well-being of our neighbors, whether they believe in Jesus or not. We should seek the peace of the city like Jeremiah called those living in exile to seek in Babylon. 
But if it's going to be a discipline, you can't just leave it in the area of spontaneous. In fact, I would suggest to you that we've learned this morning that spontaneous giving is the overflow of a practice of giving. I would suggest to you that the people who are most likely to give spontaneously and generously are the ones who have invested and cultivated in a practice and a plan of giving. Okay? And so I'm talking here about intentional giving. That means budgetary assignments for generosity. In fact, I've got a really interesting idea that I would suggest to you. What if you determined a bucket in your budget for generosity assigned, you know, as a portion of your paycheck or a portion of your month's budget, and you had it available to meet needs as you found them? Whether they're small needs that you encounter in sharing what you have with those in immediate need or large opportunities that come that you can be a part of the solution. And you go, well, maybe an opportunity doesn't come up by the end of the month. Fine. Then have a, uh, a place to channel those funds when they're unspent. Have a, uh, a ministry or an organization or a nonprofit or a place that will put that money to good use. And if God doesn't lay out an opportunity for you to use it during the month, it'll go right there. Okay. I would suggest to you that all disciplines require planning, intention, and rhythms. And that's true for giving. I've already mentioned that it should be part of your participation in the church, a part of your worship of God that you give to the cause of the kingdom. But I would say the same thing about your generosity, that you should cultivate at levels that are possible and, side note, costly, uh, but possible. You should find a rhythm of generosity in your life. Organizations that you can support, or a readiness to be able to give. I want to suggest to you one passage in closing that has been coming to mind to me all week. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we're to put off the old man and to put on the new man in Jesus Christ. And then when he's illustrating on that, uh, in the following verses, this is one of the examples he gives. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, that's the put off. Thieves no longer be thieves. But there's also a put on. He says, but rather let him work with his own hands so that he may have something to give to those in need. Notice the put on is not just not just um, get a job, not just provide appropriately for your needs, but work in such a way that you have something to give. I think this is a new window even into our choice of employment. I think sometimes we as Christians can feel a tension about taking a, a job that pays more or pursuing a career that is wealth-oriented or has a bigger thing. Sometimes we feel like the only options for true Christian service is to go into ministry or to work, you know, uh, work for, for crusts of bread at a nonprofit. But Paul suggests in Ephesians 4 that it's also appropriate to strategically work hard and earn money so you have more to share. That's the type of planning and intention that I'm talking about. What I'm suggesting to you today is that God has given us the gift of giving. 
And I don't mean the gift like the New Testament spiritual gift of giving. He's given you the possibility, the opportunity to give as a tool to be used as you grow in Christ. And I love that. Because a lot of times we separate the the sacred and the secular. The spiritual and the material. But everything you have in your life can be harnessed to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to be found faithful. Yes, we know that you have given your servants a certain number of talents. You have given us the opportunities uh, and the money, and you have called us to be faithful. But also, Lord, we desire to be formed, to better know you, to more be satisfied in you, to experience you in a deeper way. I pray that you would help us to recognize that one of the tools that you've given us to grow in those areas is the ability to give. I pray, Lord, that as we search our own hearts and our own budgets, that you would guide each one in steps that they can take to cultivate this discipline, knowing that investments they make here will not be regretted. God, we know, uh, we know that the secret to contentment that Paul says that he's learned in, Jesus, or in, in Philippians chapter 4 is found in faith, in trusting you, is found in obedience, in hearing your call to do and doing it, is found uh, in experiencing your provision and your goodness, And so I pray, Lord, that as we think through these things, that we would have the right vision, that we would not give out of duty, that we would not avoid giving because other things are more important, but instead, Lord, that we would give because you have been so generous to the degree, a superabundance of generosity, Lord, that even what we have when we share when we give it away, becomes productive in our life and fruitful. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this wisdom. And I thank you for this newfound opportunity to step out in faith and obedience. We pray that you would lead us as a church in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.